0: As Troy's already mentioned, we will be continuing our time in Joshua here this morning. Please open your Bibles to Joshua chapter 22. We'll work our way through this last and final section of the book of Joshua. We'll cover all of chapter 22 in our time together this morning. As you're turning there, there was something I found myself pondering, and maybe I'm the only one. Um, But have you ever found yourself walking through a building staring up at the ceiling and marveling at the architectural beams and arches that you see. You're like, no, no, Brad, not really. I, I notice these things. Most of you notice that or know that I have a background in construction and architecture. And, and I find it fascinating that we can sit maybe even in a room like this with the ceiling suspended 100 feet above our heads or 40 feet above our heads, 100 feet in width, and considering the construction marvel that that is. I find these absolutely fascinating. These building components called beams or trusses are designed to carry massive loads, and they provide the backbone for much of what makes modern architecture and design visually intriguing, as they allow us to have these large open spaces and customization within them, rather than these boxy little buildings that hold up the roof. Whether it's a simple beam in your home that makes a garage door possible, or the enormous steel beams that make a room like this feasible, engineering marvels are the workhorse. These engineering marvels are the workhorses of modern architecture. And yet, you might be surprised to learn that they're also somewhat inherently unstable. Not these, not the ones I'm, you know, not that. But these sort of beams and trusses are inherently unstable because they suspend massive weights high in the air And so as a result, they're subject to failure in a couple of key ways. First, it's not uncommon for them to fail from catastrophic structural failure. If, If you put too much weight on top of them, if you don't recognize the weight that they need to carry, they will collapse in magnificent fashion. Again, not these. I don't want to lose anybody this morning, okay? If I see you stirring up the ceiling, I'm going to know what you're looking at. But the second way they tend to fail is due to toppling. If you recall high school science, they have a very high center of gravity. If there's a lot of weight suspended up at the top, then something is subject to easily wanting to fall over. And if they aren't supported appropriately by the two pillars at each end, they're subject to wanting to rock and fall. And while that's fascinating, you're like, what does that matter, Brad? The reason I was pondering this is I was thinking and reading Joshua 22 this week. I couldn't help but notice how similar these sort of trusses and beams are to the unity we experience in human relationships. Whether it's in your family, your marriage, your team at work, or even our church here together this morning, human relationships and communities have an enormous potential for good, do they not? All of us have experienced the benefits of being part of a community and the benefits of close relationships and the way those have helped us in our own lives. However, They are also incredibly fragile things, are they not? If we underestimate the weight that communities and relationships carry, or we fail to appropriately support them, then they can fail and fracture catastrophically. And all of us have probably experienced some of that as well. See, here in Joshua 22... We'll see here in a moment that war nearly breaks out in this nation. After they've finished conquering external enemies, war nearly breaks out as a result of one simple action. And the unity in the nation and the death of two and a half tribes is narrowly avoided because Israel simultaneously prioritizes two things. They prioritize God's holiness and they prioritize love for one another. These two things form the pillars that support the trust work of the unity in the nation of Israel here in Joshua 22. And I'd make the case to you this morning that the same is true for us this morning as well. But before we dive into Joshua 22 and we look at this incredible story in this book, let's pray and ask for God's guidance in our time together. Father, it's such a joy to move into the season of Advent to sing and celebrate the fact that we get the joy of recognizing Christ came to earth, that Emmanuel came, God with us, to rescue us, to save us, and we celebrate that reality as we celebrate communion. Lord, we are humbled and amazed by your work on our behalf. So Father, as we continue to study your word, as we continue to worship you in the teaching of your word this morning, I pray that you would continue to refine us, to shape us, to mold us, encourage our hearts, challenge us. And use your word this morning for the sake of your name and for the sake of your people. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I always want to make sure that we take some time and place ourselves correctly in the book that we're studying. If you've been with us over the course of the last few months, you know that in Joshua, we've broken the book up into four major parts. The first part in chapters 1 through 5 was the preparation, the crossing into the land as they prepared to take this promised land that God had given them. Chapter 6 through 12, the second section, detailed the taking of the land as the actual battle portion occurred as they conquered the enemies and God gave them victory after victory after victory. Last week, we wrapped up the allotment of the land in chapter 21 as God distributed the land to the different tribes and then the cities of refuge were designated and the cities of the Levites were designated. And verse 45 of chapter 21 would be a lovely way to end the book, would it not? Verse 45 in chapter 21 said, Not one word of all the good promises that the Lord God had made to the house of Israel had failed. All came to pass. It would be a pleasant, and they lived happily ever after in the land sort of moment. But there's more the Israelites need to hear. And here at the end of Joshua, we get three chapters that are exhortation. God calls the people to live, to serve, to worship in a unique way now that they're in the promised land. And chapter 22 through 24 describes that worship, that service, that lifestyle of living for God. And the first thing that it addresses is the issue of practical unity. And I'll make the case that from chapter 22, we can argue that practical unity requires a zeal for God's holiness that is matched by a humble love for one another. These are the pillars that support this trust work of unity. And so Joshua 22 provides a practical example of how this plays out in Israel's history. The flow of this chapter is fairly straightforward. Here's my outline for this morning. First, we see unity displayed in the people of God in verses 1 through 9. Then, not surprisingly, in three short verses, we see how unity is damaged, how there's a crisis in the nation of Israel. Then, unity is defended in verses 13 through 29, and finally, unity is boldly declared as it's been restored in verses 30 through 34. First, Israel's unity is displayed. We see this in verses 1 through 9. Here Joshua issues some of his final words to these eastern Transjordan tribes in the book of Joshua as they return home to their land on the east side of the Jordan. Look at verse 1. At that time, Joshua summoned the Reubenites and the Gadites and the half-tribe of Manasseh. And he said to them, now before we get into the actual content there, he brings these two and a half tribes that were to live on the east side of the Jordan, that was where their allotment had been placed, and he gives them these final words. And his final words consist of four parts. He praises them, he encourages them to take their reward, he issues a warning, and then he blesses them. First, he praises them. Look at verse 2. And he said to them, You have kept all that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you, and have obeyed my voice in all that I have commanded you. You have not forsaken your brothers these many days down to this day, but have been careful to keep the charge of the Lord your God. I praises them for their faithfulness, for their obedience, for their loyalty both to each other and to the Lord. In short, they had done precisely what they promised to do at the beginning of the book. If you recall back from Joshua chapter one, verses twelve through fifteen these tribes who had settled in the land east of the Jordan had promised that they would come into the land and they would fight beside their brothers until they had all received their portion in the promised land as well. So he praises them. They have kept their promise to the people of Israel. And he says, as a result, here is your reward. Look at verse 4. It says, and now the Lord your God has given rest to your brothers as he promised them. Therefore turn and go to your tents in the land where your possession lies which Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you on the other side of the Jordan. This is exactly what had been promised. After they had defeated Sihon and Og, and after they had said, this is a good land, we would like this land, they came in, they conquered the land with the other tribes, and now they're returning home. But Joshua also issues a warning here. Look at verse 5. It says this, Only be careful to observe the commandments and the law that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you, to love the Lord your God and to walk in all his ways and to keep his commandments, and to cling to him, and to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul. Essentially what Joshua tells them is, go home, settle where you're supposed to settle, but don't forget what you've learned over the last seven years. Don't forget what faithfulness looks like in practice. And I love these verbs. Did you pick up on the six verbs? He details practically what faithfulness to God looks like. He says, observe the law. Do everything that the law has commanded. Be obedient to God. Love the Lord. Have an affection and a passion for the Lord your God. Walk in his ways. Keep his commandments. And then I love that imagery. Cling to him. Cling to him and serve him. That's that word. Serve or worship him with all your heart and with all your soul. Says, go home, but don't lose sight of the importance of obedience and worship and a commitment to the Lord your God. And much of this language, you'll notice, is mirrored in Psalm 119 that later gets written. Psalm 119 details the benefits of obeying the word of the Lord and reading the word of the Lord. And if you read through that psalm, you'll notice a lot of similarities here. Saying, read the word, obey the word, do the word, love the Lord. Pretty straightforward. Then he wraps up the whole conversation and basically says goodnight to these tribes. Look at verse 6. So Joshua blessed them and sent them away. And they went to their tents. This whole section clearly displays an ongoing need and command for zealously honoring, obeying, and worshiping God. So the way you will stay faithful is by staying committed to the Lord your God and by staying committed to his word. But before they move on, the author adds one more brief editorial note, a final goodbye, if you will, in verses 7-9. through 9. Now to the one half tribe of Manasseh, Moses had given a possession in Bashan. To the other half, Joshua had given a possession besides their brothers in the land west of the Jordan. And when Joshua sent them away to their homes and blessed them, he said to them, Go back to your tents with much wealth and with very much livestock, with silver, gold, bronze, and iron, with much clothing. Divide the spoils of your enemies with your brothers. So the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh returned home, parting from the people of Israel at Shiloh, which is in the land of Canaan, to go to the land of Gilead. Their own land, which they had possessed themselves by command of the Lord through Moses. bit of an understatement here. As you can almost sense Joshua and the people's affection for these tribes as they walk away. These men had been blood brothers for the last seven years. They'd engaged in combat side by side. Something that only truly those that have can understand. Then he says, it's time for you to go home. This is the sort of affection and devotion to one another that miniseries like Band of Brothers or a movie like Saving Private Ryan seeks to capture, the sort of affinity and affection that only people that have experienced combat together understand, and here they have to say goodbye to these brothers that they have fought alongside of for seven years. I think what you see in this section is both the zeal and the commitment to the Lord that it needs to be displayed, and also the clear affection and the love for God's people and one another that the people experienced as well. All of this opening section is very positive as they are displaying the sort of unity supported by a zeal for God and a love for each other that's necessary to maintain unity. And I would argue that these same realities are what we display again and again and again in the church as we gather with one another to sit under God's word and to commit ourselves to the instruction and obedience of God's commands. As we sing together in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, declaring God's worth together with one voice, committing ourselves with an enthusiasm and zeal to the worship of our God. As we baptize new believers, as we're going to be doing here in a minute, celebrating God's grace in the lives of people who didn't know him before and now do. As we celebrate communion, proclaiming Christ's death together together, assuring ourselves that he's coming back again. That's a guaranteed promise. And as we pray for one another, seeking God's help and God's guidance in everyday life, these vertical dimensions of a zeal for God's holiness and these horizontal dimensions of a love for God's people are what promote unity in God's church. In a hundred different ways, we corporately display our zeal for God's holiness and our love for one another week in and week out, just like the Israelites did here. But, just like the Israelites, our unity is fragile. It's hard to maintain, is it not? And it isn't long before Israel's unity is damaged here. We see that in verses 10 through 12. In three short verses, the whole tone of the book shifts. The flashpoint of the conflict comes from what may seem like a rather insignificant matter to us. Look at verse 11. And when they came to the region of the Jordan, that is in the land of Canaan, the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh built there an altar by the Jordan, an altar of imposing size. So these two and a half tribes return back home, but before they fully go to their homes on the other side of the Jordan River, they build an altar, an altar that's likely a replica of the altar that would have been at Shiloh, where the people of God would have worshipped and offered sacrifices to God. And reports get back to the remaining tribes. Look at verse 11. And the people of Israel heard it, said, Behold, the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh have built the altar at the frontier of the land of Canaan, in the region about the Jordan, on the side that belongs to the people of Israel. So report gets back to these western tribes, and what do the western tribes do? Verse 12, And when the people of Israel heard it, the whole assembly of the people of Israel gathered at Shiloh to make war against them. And we go, what? They just sent off their brothers in arms... They get to the other side of the Jordan, they built this altar, the word gets back to the western tribes, and what's the first thing they do? War. They gather together to go kill the people they just said goodbye to. Why? Why was their response to this so severe? I don't have the time to read all the way through Deuteronomy chapter 12 this morning, but if you read that in your time together this afternoon, you'll learn that one of the things that God commanded his people is when they enter the promised land, God will specify a place where they are to worship, and they are not to worship and offer sacrifices in other places. So it seems that the Western tribes are motivated by this positive zeal for God's holiness. They have a passion to see God worshiped appropriately, and they have a desire to see Israel not disobeying the commands. And so they go to war. They grab all their soldiers and they get them together at Shiloh and they say, We're going to go attack our brothers on the east side of the Jordan, if that's what it takes. And this, in many ways, is a good motivation, is it not? When God's clear commands in Scripture are being violated, we must be willing to risk unity, must we not? Unity isn't an all-encompassing truism that overrides everything else. There are things that are worth risking our unity and our fellowship over. Much the same way as I don't make a habit out of Climbing up into trees or on the roof, I don't make a habit out of running into the street, but if one of my children is in that dangerous situation, I'm more than happy to do that. There are things that are worth risking life and limb for. And here, the Western tribes view the Eastern tribes as violating God's commands, and so they're willing to risk their comfort, and they're willing to risk their lives for the sake of the worship of God. And I think this is demonstrated again in the New Testament as well. If you read through your New Testament, you'll learn there's a number of scenarios that we are to risk our unity over for the sake of God's holiness. When we are sinned against and there's a clear violation of God's scripture, we are to address the person and forgive them. That's Matthew 18, 15 through 20. When that sinning is unrepentant, when it's grievous and overt, we are eventually to remove that person from the church. That's 1 Corinthians chapter 5 that we studied last fall. When we've, been offended by, or when we've offended someone else, we're called to reconcile. Matthew 5, verses 21 through 26, Christ tells his disciples, if you're going to the altar to offer a sacrifice of worship to God, and you realize that you've offended your brother, leave your sacrifice and go and reconcile with your brother. When errors occur in the church, we are to patiently and gently correct that 2 Timothy 2, verses 22 through 26. When God's clear commands are being violated, we are called to risk our comfort and unity. God's reputation is worth risking unity over. However, those of us that are quick to confront can also err. And so in this third section, I think it demonstrates how not to sacrifice unity in our zeal for God's holiness. And we see unity defended in verses 13 through 29. Now, there are two big components to this section. There's the western speech and then the eastern speech. The western tribes deliver their accusation to the eastern tribes, and the eastern tribes respond. After gathering for war, the nine and a half tribes send a delegation to the eastern tribes. We read about that in verse 13. Then the people of Israel sent to the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh in the land of Gilead, Phinehas, the son of Eleazar the priest, and with him ten chiefs, one from each of the tribal families of Israel every one of them the head of a family among the clans of Israel. And they came to the people of Reuben, and the people of Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, in the land of Gilead, and they said to them, now before we get to the actual speech, you understand what's going on. These tribes have gathered for war, but before they actually start shooting, they send this delegation. They send the son of the priest, Phinehas, and they send 12 tribal leaders along with him, this delegation to their brothers on the eastern side of the Jordan, Now, what do they declare to them? And this section is critical. Look at what they say in verses 16 through 20. Thus says the whole congregation of the Lord, what is this breach of faith that you have committed against the God of Israel in turning away this day from following the Lord by building yourselves an altar this day in rebellion against the Lord? You sense the emotion here? 17. Have we not had enough of the sins at Peor from which even yet we have not been cleansed ourselves? And for which there came a plague upon the congregation of the Lord, that you too must turn away this day from following the Lord. And if you too rebel against the Lord today, then tomorrow he will be angry with the whole congregation of Israel. But now if the land you possess is unclean, pass over into the Lord's land where the Lord's tabernacle stands and take for yourself a possession among us. Only do not rebel against the Lord or make us as rebels by building for yourselves an altar other than the altar of the Lord our God. Did not Achan, the son of Zerah, break faith in the matter of the devoted things? And wrath fell upon all the congregation of Israel. He did not perish alone in his iniquity. Their concerns are made very clear. In passionate, unadulterated language, their assessment of the eastern two and a half tribes is that they are in stark rebellion against God. They say, you've built this altar And our assessment of why you've built this altar is to rebel against God. You intend to offer sacrifices on it. You intend to walk away from the Lord your God and engage in idolatry. Therefore, we're prepared to go to war against you over that. And it's very clear what their fear is here. They express it in a couple of different ways. They're fearful that God is going to judge the whole nation because of the Eastern tribes' rebellion. You notice they mention both Achan's sin, who he didn't perish alone, and also the sin of Peor. Now, we talked about Achan's sin here a few weeks ago, how he took things from the city of Jericho, and as a result, God judged the whole nation, and a bunch of people were killed while they went to battle, and then Achan and his whole family were killed. This sin of Peor that he mentions here is also critical in verse 17. You can find it in Numbers 25. What's taken place is following the whole incident with Balaam. If you remember Balaam and the talking donkey... This man Balaam comes to Israel and tries to curse them before they enter the promised land. But God prevents Balaam from cursing them. He tries again and again and again, but he's unable to curse the people of Israel. But what Balaam is unable to accomplish through his curse, the people of Israel accomplish on their own. They start to worship Baal, and they start to engage in deviant sexual practices with the people of the land, and as a result, God has to judge his own people. 24,000 of them die as a result of God's judgment. And it's worth noting here, it's really interesting, this son of Eleazar, Phineas, is actually the one who ends that plague in Numbers 25. After a number of people have died, after 24,000 people have died, Phineas mans up and takes action, and the plague stops. So you can sense his fear and his zeal here. Don't let that happen again. 24,000 of us died the last time that happened. They passionately claim that the eastern tribes are abandoning the worship of God and they're violating the covenant of their Lord. So they make an appeal. And I love verse 19. I I love how they practically put into play what they believe. In verse 19 they say, here's the case. If this is true, but you're doing it because your land is unclean, then come over and live in our land. Worship in the tabernacle. They offer to give up their own allotment of land, their own provision from the Lord, which God just gave them, if it means that the people will come back to worshiping God correctly. I love the incredible zeal of the Western tribes here. They're willing to practically put into play and sacrifice their material possessions to see their brothers won back. You can appreciate their necessity there, and probably there's a exhortation for us about the willingness to give up our own material positions or possessions for one another as well. But for the time being, I don't wanna camp out on that. Because with tensions running high, and war being threatened, the eastern tribes must now give their defense. Look at verse 21. Then the people of Reuben, the people of Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh said, in answer to the heads of the families of Israel. Their response has two components as well. Their response includes both where they agree with their opponents, and where they need some clarification. First, their agreement, look at verse 22. The Mighty One, God, the Lord. The Mighty One, God, the Lord. He knows. And let Israel itself know. If it was in rebellion, in breach of faith against the Lord, do not spare us today for building an altar to turn away from following the Lord. Or if we did so to offer burnt offerings or grain offerings or peace offerings on it, may the Lord himself take vengeance. They essentially said, amen and amen. Amen. If your assessment is accurate, You are absolutely right in doing what you're doing. They believe that God is great. They say, God, the mighty one, the Lord, repeated twice for emphasis. They believe in God's knowledge, in his omniscience. They say, he knows. He knows the thoughts and intentions of the heart. He knows what's going on in our hearts and in our minds as we're engaging in this activity. And they also amen God's judgment. They say at the end of verse 23, if we did this, what you're saying we do, then may the Lord himself... Take vengeance. Say, Amen. We agree with your high view of the worship of God. But, they say, you've misjudged our motives. And so they offer a clarification in verse 24. Look at this. No, but we did it from fear that in time to come, your children may say to our children, what have you to do with the Lord, the God of Israel? For the Lord has made the Jordan a boundary between us and you you people of Reuben and the people of Gad, you have no portion in the Lord, so your children might make our children cease to worship the Lord. Therefore, we said, let us now build an altar, not for burnt offerings, not for sacrifice, but to be a witness between us and you and between our generations after us that we do perform the service of the Lord in his presence with our burnt offerings and sacrifices and peace offerings, so your children will not say to our children in time to come, you have no portion in the Lord. And we thought, If this should be said of us or our descendants in times to come, we should say, behold, the copy of the altar of the Lord, which our fathers made, not for burnt offerings, nor for sacrifices, but to be a witness between us and you. They Amen. They say, absolutely. If we are in rebellion against God, then judge us. But that wasn't actually our motivation. That wasn't why we built this altar. Their real motivations are very different. They're actually fearful of being cut off from the rest of Israel. They mentioned that a couple of times. They're afraid that in future generations, the Western tribes will look at the Eastern tribes and say, we don't want anything to do with you guys. You can't come and worship at Shiloh. You can't come and worship God here. So they build this altar that's a replica so that it'll be a testimony of how they were both a part of this campaign and the worship of God. They take this action. They say, we're not going to sacrifice on this altar. Instead, we've built it to remind future generations that we are one as a people. And they punctuate the whole conversation with verse 29. Far be it from us that we should rebel against the Lord and turn this day from following the Lord by building an altar or burnt offerings, grain offerings, or sacrifice other than the altar of the Lord, our God, that stands before his tabernacle. That wasn't our intention at all. Now, this brings us to an interesting point. As we read narrative in the Old Testament, there's a challenge that comes with it. And the challenge is that more often than not, the narrators, the authors of the text, don't give us insight into what was going on in people's minds. They don't tell us exactly what was going on in the minds of the Western tribes. Were their motives entirely pure, or were they just seeking some battle? They don't tell us what's going on in the Eastern tribes. Were they just feeding a line to the Western tribes to save their skin, or were they honest in their appeal? We don't know definitively, so we must be a little careful, and yet... I find this whole interaction is fascinating, because at least two things become very clear in my mind as I read it. The first is both the Western and Eastern tribes are pictured defending God's holiness. Did you hear that? Did you see that? The Western tribes are motivated by a zeal for God's holiness, and the Eastern tribes are saying, we are with you. We agree with you on those points. The Western tribes are motivated to war through that zeal, and the Eastern tribes are motivated to peace for that zeal. But in addition, both groups are also seen as demonstrating a humble, patient love for each other, are they not? Because the Western tribes, convinced that the Eastern tribes were engaged in this sort of idolatry, could have come in guns blazing. They could have skipped the whole delegation and just shot first and asked questions later. Instead, they choose to listen to what the Eastern tribes have to say, And the Eastern tribes also demonstrate a humble, patient love for the Western tribes because they don't just respond in kind. Instead, they say, we're actually in agreement with you on more than we're in disagreement on. You've just misread our motives. You've misunderstood why we're doing what we're doing. I believe here that both Eastern and Western tribes are pictured as defending unity through their zeal for God's holiness and their humble love for each other. They exemplify these two pillars that maintain unity in the community of God's people. And I think that same sort of defense of unity is just as much needed today as it was then, Because it's so easy to forget one pillar in our zeal for the other. It is so easy to compromise on truth to begin looking like, sounding like, acting like our culture, and we need to be reminded of this commitment to obeying God's Word and loving the Lord and clinging to Him. It is so easy in our culture to fall for idolatry, to chase after the things that our culture says are important, to pursue the white picket fence and the family and the retirement account and lists off go on and on and on, rather than a zeal for the Lord and His holiness. It is so easy to grow cold and complacent in our worship of God. To lack an enthusiasm and in a genuineness of our relationship with Him just fall into the rhythm of doing the same thing over and over and over. And some of us need to be reminded of that zeal for God's holiness and the worship of Him. But it is also easy in our zeal for God's holiness to forget about the love and unity we're supposed to exemplify with one another it is easy to straw man our opponents. To claim that we understand exactly what's motivating them and therefore we can speak to where they're at. To fail to listen and to fail to hear people. It is so easy to shoot first and ask questions later. Particularly if you're much of a social media warrior where your anonymous comments can be read by anyone but you don't have to take credit for what was said. It is so easy to assume the worst possible motivation on the part of your opponent. Whether they're outside the church or whether they're a brother or sister sitting next to you. I do this all the time with my wife. She does something and I go, I know exactly why she did that. The only reason she could have done that was to hurt my feelings. And we laugh, but imagine the arrogance of that. I claim to be omniscient be able to weave myself into her brain and understand what caused her to do that. And then I get to hold it against her. Into all this, God's word instead commands James 1, 19 and 20. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. We are a we are a bit of a shoot-from-the-hip culture. We fire things off without fully thinking them through, without fully listening. And I love Israel's example here. As they defend unity, and today defending unity requires actively fighting against both of these attitudes. Either pillar getting out of whack creates an unstable building. But what I find even possibly more impressive than the approach of the Israelites here is how the whole situation concludes and how God uses whatever their motivation was for the sake of his people. And we see that in unity declared in verses 30 through 34. First, we look at the Western tribes' reaction. They react in two ways that I find fascinating. Look at verse 30. When Phineas, the priest, and the chiefs of the congregation the heads of the families in Israel who were with him heard the words that the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the people of Manasseh spoke. It was good in their eyes. And Phinehas, the son of Eleazar the priest, said to the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the people of Manasseh, Today we know that the Lord is in our midst because you have not committed this breach of faith against the Lord. Now you have delivered the people of Israel from the hand of the Lord. See what he did? See what happened when he listened? See how much his opinion changed? He accepts the answer. And it's worth noting here that he gives them the benefit of the doubt. He doesn't launch an inquiry in finding out why they did what they did. They don't give them a period of probation where they wait to see if they fix their error or not. Simply believe what their brothers say. And then they go on and react in a second way. Look at verse 32. Then Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the priest, and the chiefs, returned from the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the land of Gilead to the land of Canaan, to the people of Israel. And they brought back word to them. And the report was good in the eyes of the people of Israel. And the people of Israel blessed God and spoke no more of making war against them to destroy the land where the people of Reuben and the people of Gad were settled. This delegation accepts the answer, the counterpoint that the eastern tribes make, and they go back home and they correct their mistake. They explain precisely what the eastern tribes were about to the people of Israel that were waiting at home to go to war, and the people accept it as well. They correct their mistake and they reconcile with their eastern brothers. a Fascinating way to respond, is it not? Or I at least have a tendency to double down on my position the more others push back on it. But the eastern tribes go even farther, and they actually go as far as naming the tribe or naming the altar. Look at verse 35, or 34. The people of Reuben and the people of Gad called the altar witness. For they said, It is a witness between us that the Lord is God. This is a testimony. This is a declaration of how God is good. Now we don't always understand each other, and yet God works it for good. Unity amongst God's people is powerfully declared when our zeal for God and our love for one another results in reconciliation. In some ways, that's even more powerful than the unity that was displayed at the beginning of the chapter, is it not? That there was something that came between them, and yet, through God's sovereignty, unity is restored. In some ways, it's part of the reason we like the Olympics, is it not? We have a tendency to watch the Olympics, not so much because of its incredible athletic prowess, Yes, I admit, it's impressive. And not just because it gives us the opportunity to find and watch bizarre sports. I mean, who doesn't like curling, right? But chiefly, one of the most powerful things about the Olympics is watching competitors from functionally warring nations congratulating and encouraging each other on the podium. When we watch people who should be at odds with each other, reconciled and restored, encouraging each other, such a powerful reminder, is it not? It is such an encouragement, and that's kind of what takes place here in this story. In some ways, their unity is even more impressive because there has been a disparity. There has been a dispute. There has been a disagreement. Now think about the relevance for us today. In our churches, in our marriages, in our working relationships, the list could go on and on. Do we, do you, Assume misunderstanding instead of intentional offense? Do you assume that maybe there's a possibility that you have misconstrued the motivations of the other person? That maybe there's a chance that your sin is just as desperately wicked and deceitful as theirs might be? That maybe there's a possibility you've wrongly accused someone Do you assume misunderstanding instead of attentional offense? Do you, like the Western tribes, choose to give the benefit of the doubt? To presume and to see somebody in the best possible light, or do you presume the worst possible motivation? Do we admit our mistake and seek to restore both relationship and reputation when we've been wrong? When we have misjudged and mismaligned someone... Do we seek to see that relationship restored? Do we seek to see that reputation restored? Do we go back with the correction like Phineas did and said, hey guys, we were wrong? We didn't understand as much as we thought we did. And lastly, do you see reconciliation as powerful evidence of God's goodness? Do you see the fact that when relationships are restored and reconciled, it is an evidence of God's sovereign, providential hand? How he is so good in spite of the fact that we are all so messed up, that God can work unity and grace out of a messed up, sinful situation. Do you see reconciliation as powerful evidence of God's goodness? Unity in the church requires declaring it both in word and in action both in what we say and the way we treat each other. And I think that's the point of Joshua 22. I think that's really what Joshua 22 is on about, as God establishes people in the promised land, and he is seeking to see them live prosperously in the home he's given them. He tells us that practical unity requires both a zeal for God's holiness and a humble love for each other. These are the two pillars that support the trust work of unity among God's people. And isn't that the motivation that Christ displayed so powerfully in his life and death? A zeal for the holiness and doing the will of his Father. A passionate desire to see God worshipped everywhere. And enough love to come to the earth, to shed his blood on our behalf, to die for the sins and the offense of somebody else, to receive that in his own body, in his own blood. I am so astonished as I consider the work of Jesus Christ as he walked for three and a half years with Judas, who he knew for a fact was lying to him and stealing from their treasury. And yet Jesus shows him grace day after day after day and goes to the cross to die for the sins of people like us. when asked what is the greatest commandment, he says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. So from Joshua 22, I think that we should seek to display unity in our relationships in the church, and when it is damaged, which it inevitably will be, we should seek to humbly, patiently defend it, and to boldly declare when it's been restored, to publicly celebrate the work that God has done in us and through us see how these two pillars function to support the trust work of unity in the church? How the pillar of a zeal for God's holiness and the pillar of a love for one another results in the sort of trust work that allows for a building like this to exist, allows for a building like the people of God to exist. I think that's precisely the same point that Paul makes in Ephesians chapter 4. In the quintessential passage on unity in the church, Paul writes some incredible words, and I just want to close with his words in Ephesians 4, as he stresses both the zeal for God and doctrine and a love for God's people. Ephesians 4, verse 1. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, Just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. This is the source of unity for us as a church. Let's pray. Father, we praise you for the gift of your word. We thank you for both condescending to give it to us and for empowering it so that it changes hearts and minds. Lord, we ask that you would continue to do that in our hearts and minds. Help us to be unified, not in some vague sense, but as a result of our passion for you and our love for one another. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.